This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas's Classical Education Graduate Program. With a dedicated faculty and staff drawing on extensive experience in the classical tradition, the Classical Education Graduate Program benefits from the strength of the university's nationally recognized core curriculum which embodies the UD's dedication to the pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue as the proper and primary ends of education. The Classical Education Graduate Program combines the ethos of this core curriculum with a concentration on the theory and practice of classical education, bringing these to the working and aspiring classical teachers, school administrators, and home educators around the country. Earn a classical teaching certificate, a Master of Humanities degree, or a Master of Arts degree in classical education. With an extensive array of online courses, the program is designed to meet the schedules of busy classroom and homeschool teachers. In addition, for a limited time, the classical education program at the University of Dallas has scholarships available that can reduce the cost of the program by up to 90%. That's 90, 90%. Don't miss out on this opportunity today. Visit udallas.edu slash classical ed to start your application. Again, that is udallas.edu slash classical ed. Welcome back to Forma, a podcast from the Searcy Institute Podcast Network and the audio companion to Forma Journal and FormaJournal.com. I'm David Kern, and I'm an editor here at Forma. Poet Morris Manning was born and raised in Kentucky, where he writes and teaches about literature. His first book of poems was called Lawrence Booth's Book of Visions. It came out in 2001 and was chosen by noted poet W.S. Merwin for the Yale Series of Younger Poets Award. His other books of poetry include A Companion of Owls, Being the Commonplace Book of D. Boone, Lone Hunter, Backwoodsman, etc. from 2004, Bucolics from 2007, 
The Common Man from 2010, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry, and The Gone and the Going Away. And he has a new collection of poetry out this month from Copper Canyon Press. It's called Rail Splitter, and it's from the perspective of the posthumous Abraham Lincoln. It imagines Abraham Lincoln's voice after his assassination. It's delightful, a little bit weird, and wonderfully imaginative, and it's one of the best books of poetry that I've read in 2019. Late in the summer, I had an opportunity to visit Mr. Manning in his home in Kentucky. We chatted two different times, once in the morning and once in the evening. During the morning portion of the conversation, we talked about poetry more generally. That conversation is in the summer issue of Former Journal, and you can find that conversation at formerjournal.com. During the evening portion of our conversation, we talked more about Rail Splitter specifically, the, the books that influenced it, the place that it came from, what, what inspired um, this imaginative jaunt through Abraham Lincoln's perspective that Mr. Manning took. We talked about what he hopes the book will be for readers, and much more. This podcast conversation that you're about to hear is that evening conversation that we had. We sat in his writing shed. Well, the, the crickets and the birds made noises all around us, um, so you'll hear some of that in this conversation. But it was the perfect setting for a conversation with a poet who cares deeply about the place that he's from, the land that he lives on, and the things that he's looking to preserve. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with poet Morris Manning about his new book, Rail Splitter, out this month from Copper Canyon Press. Where did your interest in Abraham Lincoln come from such that you were motivated to write an entire collection of poetry from his posthumous point of view? Because that's a, that's, a, that's a significant endeavor. The number of hours you'd have to spend in his head and pretending you're him, all those sorts of things, I suspect means that you had to have some kind of, at least a mild fascination with him. So where did that start for you? Well, uh, I'm from Kentucky and Lincoln was born in Kentucky. And when I was an early reader in, in uh, grade school or early elementary school, I read um, all of these um, biographies of particularly frontier figures, and one of which was Lincoln, one of was Daniel Boone and the Mountain Men and people like I, that. I remember those series. Was, yeah. Were they the blue ones? I don't remember that much. I, I just remember those. I was much more interested in those books about the American frontier uh, than I was in the Hardy Boys or yeah. any any of that stuff. And it's I know I I know now that my uh, ancestors were frontier people hmm. here in Kentucky and. I, that's just something that I knew growing up mm. that, you know, great, 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 great grandfather and yeah. grandmother came through Cumberland Gap in the huh. 1780s, along with many other people, and found their way into some sort of settlement in Kentucky. And, mm. and um, also my family... Uh, once people came into Kentucky, nobody left. <laughs> so it, it, the, the, the knowledge of the family history kind of stayed intact. Um, and it was, it was just, a, 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 I was thinking, 
in the last few days. That's a kind of birthright that that uh, I only recognized fully um, as an adult, and and especially once I started writing, I, I realized this is this is um, right here. I don't I don't have to go looking for something to write about. The history is part of it. And is there something in the in the process of writing that that opened that up for you? I mean, you said that you realized you looked around and you said, Oh, I don't have to find something to write. It's right there for me. But you also said that in writing that became more maybe clear to you, maybe you internalized it a little bit more. Maybe it became less not just an intellectual knowledge that that's where your people came from or where you come from. But is there something specific in the actual creative process, um, particularly in writing poetry that opened that up for you and helped or helped that become more personal for you? I, um, I'm very interested in geography. Hmm. Kentucky geography, no surprise. Um, and several years ago, I began to imagine that if you are walking over a particular geography, hilly, undulating, wooded landscape, um, does that physical interaction have some bearing on the kind of thought that one has. And I'm certain it has a bearing on the rhythm of thought that I have. And I believe it shapes the phrase and and helps the phrase fall into its rhythm. And so I'm very conscious and and it's a it's a very hands-on experience for me to take a walk in the woods and kind of feel my body and mind falling into the shape of the land. Mm. So you wrote in, um, as you're talking, one of your poems in the new collection came to mind. I have it starred in my book here. Um, It's got the title, that part of the country is within itself as unpoetical as any spot of the earth. So I'm wondering, um, this is uh, from... Lincoln's ghostly point of view, I guess. Um, and I want to talk about that in a second, but you write in there that poetry, I believe that poetry is made from absence out of nothing or no real place. Um, you, you write that the poem flies as coldly as a hawk or else as sweetly as a wren, or it trots along as an old blind horse. And I'm wondering if, if that is, um, how that sort of jives with what you're describing of poetry sort of coming out of the place that you're in. Cause you're talking here about the idea of poetry coming out of an absence. Is that a fair question or am I reading into it? Two different things there. I think you're crossing some wires there because that poem is Lincoln reflecting on the home where he, the farm where they lived in Southern Indiana, Okay, which, uh, and the title there is taken from a letter that he wrote. Right. uh, Where he, he, what he's basically expressing is, at some point in my childhood, I lived in this place that is absolutely um, abject, ah. a- and anyone from the outside would would see it that way. Um, hmm. And yet, 
in that setting, Lincoln made something of himself um, from reading um, and, and, you know, having no distractions. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Other than the He day, was able to pull day. himself up yeah. by his bootstraps because of that, yeah. Yeah. Single-mindedness. Yeah. So, well, I guess one of the reasons why I asked that is because I was kind of, as I was reading, I was fascinated by the question of where does, where do you end and where does Abraham Lincoln begin or perhaps vice versa? Because maybe you started in the point of view of a ghostly Abraham Lincoln. Well, that's a very good question. And I, um, one of the things in working on this book that one of the things that just impressed me over and over again was the fact that Lincoln made anything out of himself at all, given given the circumstances of his early years. The family was utterly poor, and um, not stable in in um, in ways that that we would recognize today, or that we would hope for today, and the culture he grew up in, you know, didn't expect one thing out of someone like Lincoln. Um, but he expected something out of himself. And he he wanted to be someone who made something with his life. And I came into this world with certainly more things in my favor than than Lincoln. <laughs> Um, Modern medicine. Yes. <laughs> Antibiotics. <laughs> yeah. um, but I guess I'd, I'd, I recognize some affinity in that at some point it dawned on me that I wanted to write poems and that very few people that I was around in my youth would have ever expected that of me. Hmm. When did that happen for you? I mean, you mentioned Lincoln knew for, as a child, it seems like, that, that he wanted to make something of himself. And I suppose anybody who's motivated in that way is going to discover that early. But the, the, spe- the specificity of, you know, you thought, I, w- I want to be a poet. That's something that I want, that I aspire to, that I'm going to put the work in to do. Were you young when that happened or was that something that was later? I was young. I was young when I, it, it, it wasn't a, um, you know, an absolute conviction but when I was when I was a boy, you know, eight or ten years old, I I would daydream about being a writer, whatever that meant. It was it was pretty an un, pretty much an unformed idea at the yeah. time. I I just thought <laughs> I want to spend my day with a with a pen or pencil yeah. in my hand, making making words on the page and. Um, living living in that sort of realm that is partly imaginative and partly something to do with intelligence or sensitivity hmm. um, but for for many years it was just this like daydream of my yeah. uh, my adult self it, it it i had i didn't imagine were you telling stories and writing poetry at that age um, <laughs> i i was i was writing some poems when i was um 
eight years old, my grandparents got me a uh, portable cassette recorder, which in those days, a portable cassette recorder <laughs> was the size of a shoebox. Had a handle I, on it? It did, yeah. <laughs> and I would uh, load it up with batteries and an empty cassette, and I would walk into the woods and press record, and I'd just start telling a story. Mm. And I would just walk and tell, but just make up this story until the cassette was was filled. And then I'd come back home, and at night I would listen to the cassette in my bed as my sort of... Put yourself to sleep. Put myself to sleep time. And... I don't know what prompted that. Um, were you? I enjoyed doing it. Were you being told a lot of stories? Were your parents telling you stories, reading you poetry? Was that, was it, a, sort of your own invention, or was that something that was a part of your family or your community culture? My um, my parents were not. I never saw my dad read a single book. Really? Nope. Um, my mother read books, not necessarily great works of literature yeah. just more for entertainment and uh, do you think that, that that your interest in it came about because it was mysterious or foreign in some way there was some of that my um my dad you know this is just one of the many strange turns even though dad wasn't a reader he was from an era when young people memorized poems in mm. elementary school. Yeah. And he could recall all kinds of poems mm. um, that he had memorized for school. Even though he probably never read them again. Nope. And he, That's could, a gift. he could recall all kinds of uh, unsavory poems that, <laughs> that he had learned in the Navy and yeah. in the outside of school. Yeah. Um, As one does. Yes, <laughs> um, and so I, that was a that was I always enjoyed when Dad would usually out of the blue um, he would just spout off a few lines of some Edgar Allan Poe poem or something like that. Do you recall which ones he seemed to like the most? Um, there's an Edgar Allan Poe poem called Eula Loon, or Ula Loon, something like that. And he, he knew lines to that, which just, it's a, these days it's a rather obscure poem. It's not, it's not the Raven or Annabelle Lee or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it's in, this, it's in the same vein, yeah. vein yeah. kind of gothic. And he, he knew uh, lines from Vachel Lindsay's poem, The Congo, which is... Uh, Sometimes still still talked about. I don't. I, I, not many people read any Vachel Lindsay these days, but hmm. he probably re- knew some Kipling and the unsavory things. I'll just <laughs> won't 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 repeat any of that. But my my uh, my dad's grandmother, who had raised him, and when I was little, I stayed with her often. Um, she was the the one really literary person in hmm. my family in that she read 
Willa Cather, hmm. and she had a collection of Robert Burns's poems and hmm. um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, things like that. Um, but beyond that, I had older relatives who were just gifted storytellers. Yeah. And they were using sort of Southern Appalachian English. Yeah. So it had a lilt, it had rhythm, and all the things that I like in poetry. Is it, that where you, is that what you, uh, you've written or, or at least talked about elsewhere in, in interviews possibly about the, the way you hear language spoken, the, the, what is it, tetrameter or something like that? Like you, tetrameter, you, yeah. yeah. I, a fairly iambic tetrameter, four beat line. Um, and so does that come from hearing those people speak? Yeah. Yes, it does. My, um, I have a recording of, uh, that I made with a different portable cassette recorder when I was <laughs> Not in, as my, big. <laughs> in my early 20s. And I had uh, a great great aunt who was who lived to be a hundred and eight, <laughs> and at the time she was a hundred and two, and I went with her and my grandmother who was her in her late eighties then, um, and we just went for a visit down in Clay County, and um, I recorded our whole visit, and Aunt Clara just was in storytelling mode <laughs> and went on and on she told a story about a, a cow she had that had foundered and died and they had to bury it and its calf came and laid on its grave hmm. and in this recording i was just listening to this not long ago my aunt clara says now what about that a animal a knowing that. Hmm. That's a animal a knowing that. Hmm. So you you were surrounded by that thought. You were internalizing that. Did they, from would you say that when you were really young, you were beginning to think of language in that way or hear language that I, way, or was that something that you didn't? I, I loved when I was little. It was the best thing in the world to just sit around and listen to old people talk. Hmm. to tell stories of so-called old days. and Yeah. Um, hmm. I loved... I, I don't know. I just... I, I realized this is a particular kind of language that these people are using. This is a particular... And, and then the way one uses language... I think says something about the way one views the world and participates in it and and the older relatives of of my family that were were so easy as and and natural as storytellers they um they loved being in the world you know, they didn't go around worried about what's going to happen and and uh, where are we going to get the next money to to put food on the table. They they just didn't live that way. 
And it's not that they lived without concern, but but um, they they had a, an ease with being. What do you attribute that to? Uh, well, it's too late to nobody's around left to ask directly, but hmm. I was saying to my wife fairly recently, you know, the the people of my great-grandparents' generation who would have been born in the mid-1880s and into the 1890s, mm-hmm. um, I was lucky to know several great-grandmothers born in that era, um, one great-grandfather, hmm. other relatives born in that era, and they had a lot in common. One, they were not, not a single one of them was a materialist. Hmm. They, didn't, they didn't have possessions. They had basic utilitarian things. That hmm. My one grandmother, she had one big clay uh, pot that she, whatever she was making to eat, she made it in that. Hmm. It was, that was it. Hmm. Uh, and I can remember my great-grandmothers had, you know, maybe two or three dresses. That's it. Well, what would they make of your book collection? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, guess, I guess those are tools for you, right? Yeah. 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 That, I don't know. I one time I went. <laughs> I went to. I was visiting my dad's mother when she was in her early eighties, and uh, I pulled up to her house, and she was standing out in the garden with a hoe, wearing a dress, like she would <laughs> wear to church you know, <laughs> just she was careful not to get it dirty yeah so do you feel in some ways or maybe in in every way like your your endeavor your your job your work whatever it is your your mission is um or maybe it's your vocation is to preserve the language that you're talking about the way they spoke the stories they told and maybe even to some degree in doing that preserve the way they thought about the world, that, that sort of uh, way of living without that kind of, the fears that you were talking about, or maybe even fear isn't the right word, but... Anxiety. Anxiety, yeah. Str- uh, worry. Yeah, I mean... I, I, well, that's a... You're asking a very... Is that putting too fine a point on it? No, no, you're asking a, a big question. And one that I think about... Um, there was a time when I probably felt sentimental about the language. What do you mean by that? Oh, you know, that 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 preserving it is vital or, you know... Uh, um, because there's something inherently... Yes, yes. Poetic or inherently yeah, exactly. good about it or and I, valuable. I, I realized that that's less important than recognizing how that language signals a way to be in the world and a way to belong to the world 
and <laughs> to have a sense of one's self that is not overburdened with anxiety and worry and uh, fear and so many of the things that we live with now. Um, not to say that the things in our world today should should not produce fear and worry, but to suggest that that one can make an effort to live otherwise, um, and maybe language is a way to get us there. Uh, it's one of our tools, um, and if we're if we're using language in uh, a lazy way and in a way that's not terribly reflective then then we open ourselves up to being vulnerable when you when you talk about using it in a way that's not reflective or that's lazy there's on the one hand there's the idea that someone could just speak without thinking or not be careful about the words they're using, you know, using the word like, for example, or something like that, you know, some kind of bad habit. But on the other hand, is, is it something as simple as that? Or are you thinking more big picture, like the, like in the, in the sense that the way that we speak, well, go ahead. You're nodding. So I'll let you answer that. Yeah. I, I think it's probably uh, uh, the bigger okay. perspective that you're mentioning. Um, you know, if if a young person says the word like every other word, I think of that as more idiom than anything else. It's just the popular lingo. Yeah. Um, Something they've accumulated. Yeah, sure. In their culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you're when you really connect language to thought. Um, you realize this is a tool. This hmm. is a very powerful invention we we have. And in many ways, it's our most powerful tool. I mean, we can use it for ill and uh, great things. And therefore, it matters to, to use it properly, to use it well. Is there a sense that you think the poets work? If someone's called to be a poet, they're called to help us remember that. Like that's part of the job of being a poet. Well, I think I'm. I'm always thinking about language, um, and how how it can sound, how it can bounce in terms of rhythm. And how the sound and the rhythm can be part of whatever idea or or observation is trying to be ex- expressed, and it's it's really kind of all of that at once. It's yeah. it's sound, it's rhythm, it's meaning, somehow woven together in in a in a in a single um expression or or it's 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 all integrated hmm. um 
And you can't pull one strand apart from the others without diminishing the others. Hmm. The English language, the only one that I know, uh, is is a incredibly powerful tool that that we have, and we use in order to become individuals, and in order to be individuals who aspire to be part of a community. Hmm. Well, I'm going to I'm going to use that then the segue because I want to go back to link this. This, the, the actual book that ostensibly we're here to talk about um, in Rail Splitter, you are you're speaking from in the voice of Abraham Lincoln. So, how did you get to that voice? I mean, it's more than just you, you no. know, writing the way you would write if you were just writing from your own brain. So, how did you get into the point of view? I mean, that's obviously you talked about the the cultural language that's part of your inheritance that's been passed down, um, that you, is part of the culture that you're, that you grew up in, you were born into. Was it more than that? Was there something about the end? You just talked about the individuality of person. Did you just, did you have to get, how did you get into his individual voice? I guess is what I'm asking that point of view. Well, um, pretty early on, once I decided to commit to doing this, um, I knew that I could not, uh, because there are millions of books written about Lincoln, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I could not just write poems about Lincoln. Um, I wanted there. I wanted a more intimate perspective, and pretty early on, I thought, well. Just imagining the voice of a posthumous Lincoln who somehow has knowledge of the significance of the history that he lived in. Hmm. And, and, the, and then there was his dying. And, and, <laughs> it seems like in the book he's yes, aware of that. Yeah, he's aware that he dies and uh, has, has arrived at this sort of um, limbo eternity. Is it is it meant to be a kind of purgatorio? No, I I don't I didn't I didn't go that far in my okay. thinking with okay. it. I just yeah I I just imagine that you know we in in our era in America we hold Lincoln up as this exemplar mm-hmm. of you name it yeah. right you know yeah. whatever American uh, virtue is right and in a way it's our collective consciousness that keeps him in this limbo mm. state, mm. you know, mm. suspends him in this uh, realm that suit, huh. that suits our particular purpose. <laughs> We're putting pressure on him even, even out there. Yeah, yeah, it seems, I think so. Huh. Uh, but I also, I knew that Lincoln loved poetry. Yeah. He, he, at at times in his life when when there were very serious things going on he would recite a a poem yeah or a shakespeare soliloquy or something like that and and his reason for doing it was to let the smoothness of the verse hmm. 
comb through his own thoughts. Hmm. Like some people might use scripture if they were... Sure, yeah. of course, yeah. yeah. Um, um, the, and, but, but for him, it was something about the, the, the metrical arrangement of the language, hmm. sometimes perhaps the rhyme, hmm. um, that, that had a, a clarifying effect on hmm. his own thoughts, which were very, uh, very much burdened by realizing that if he made this decision... These people will die if he made this decision. Yeah, huh. these people will die, especially during the war. Um, so it's like <clears throat> taking a deep breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did and and how much is is there any record of how much poetry he seems to have actually memorized? Oh, that I don't I don't know off the top of yeah. my head. I was just curious. Just um, my head. I I do know that he he cited Robert Burns as his favorite poet, which I. I find kind of wonderful. Why and, is that? Other than the fact that it was the one, one of the ones that was in your grandma, your great grandma. Well, I, that was a real personal connection for me. Yeah. But um, these days in the world of poetry, if anybody talks about Robert Burns, it's ironically. It, well, it's it. It might be you know if you're of Scotch. Or Scott's, <laughs> yeah. Scott's yeah. heritage, yeah. you you would you know revere Burns because he's the national poet of Scotland or something like that. Yeah, you don't want to claim McGonagall. Yeah, um, but but he's he's probably today a historical afterthought. But there was a there was a long time when you know he was the poet that people read in school and. What did Lincoln love about him? Do you do you know? <clears throat> His facility with the language. Okay. I mean, it, and that's you can certainly see that today. He's yeah. He he had a great gift for rhyme and and pun and you know just he, the the language was his instrument. So when you were working in, on the Rail Splitter, were you in any way trying to call upon? Um, Burns as an inspiration. Did you imitate? Well, I don't imitate. Maybe is too. Well, too, um, the first poem in the book is us- utilizing a form that Burns popularized. Can you go into that for the for the for the listening audience? Yeah, uh, the the first poem in the book is called "To a Chigger," which is intended to be a little bit funny because who in the world would write a poem to a bug? <laughs> but um, one of one of uh, Robert Burns's most most anthologized poems, even today, is called "To a Mouse." Um, so, and that's in, in that poem he says um, Burns's lines are uh, the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. He, he, he writes it in Scott's dialect, but that's where John Steinbeck got his title. Title for the novel, yeah. Um, but the, the form of, of the 
of the Burns poem, To a Mouse, and many other poems that he wrote, is called A Standard Habby, which is a Scots fiddle tune form that goes back to, I didn't the, know that. to the 1600s. And so I, my first poem in this book is To a Chigger in the Standard Habby uh, form of Burns. Now is the is the um, a a a b a b rhyme scheme part of that? Yes. Okay. So that's that's part of that form. Yeah. Can you read a couple stanzas for for us? Sure. To a chigger. Oh, itchy beast of tiny figure! When I scratched myself, I made you bigger. Though you began as but a chigger, you redder rose a pistol butt without a trigger. Thus we were foes. In armpit high or ankle lower, you left me last to be the knower, that you were first to be the goer where sweat may trickle. And I was felled as by a mower with scythe and sickle. <laughs> so, you've, so you've got this kind of homage to Burns here. Is that a fair word? Sure. Yeah. Okay. For the sake of conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you find that? Did you find yourself having to, um, specifically avoid the Burns references at, what, as what, you were working I, on this collection? I'll tell you why I wanted to write a poem in this form is because I thought if I, I thought Lincoln would. Uh, find it ironic. Uh, a chigger here in Kentucky is a, is a microscopic bug that can cause serious itching and you can, you can get, you know, 30 or 40 chigger bites at a time if you're not careful. And you can be very uncomfortable for a few days. Um, and I think Lincoln felt at times, especially during the Civil War, um, irritated by either sloppy military leadership in the Union or frustrated by turns in the war and and also by political inertia. Mm -hmm. um, and, Even in the 1860s, you say? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and I think, um, you know, the, for him to interpret the things that frustrated him uh, as pesky as a chigger and then to put that into this Burns form uh, I like to think that at some point in his musings on his fate that Lincoln might have had this kind of understanding of the ironies of his time hmm. and and this poem is my effort at trying to, 
show my imagination of that. Probably could see him practicing imitating Burns anyway as a kid. I mean, oh, he did. There, yeah, he did. He he would uh, he would uh, climb up on a stump and recite a Burns poem for <laughs> the kids in the neighborhood. Did they like it? Who knows? <laughs> hey, he became president. So. Yeah. So one thing I was thinking about is, you know, first of all, the, the sort of conceit of the book, at, it, plus you get a poem like this about the chigger. I mean, you, there's a lot of humor in this book, but it's also at times very serious book, deadly serious, no pun intended. But so did you, were you aware of having to, that, that if, if you didn't, take care it could either become gloomy or if you didn't take care the other direction it could become um silly was that something you were conscious of or do you think did you just or maybe you're maybe you're just a good enough poet that that's not an issue uh well no that's not the case (laughs) i i I, uh Um, but but maybe it was instinctive though is i guess what i'm saying as opposed to you had to think about this as you were working to be conscious of lincoln Despite the fact that he was the president of the nation during the Civil War, he retained a sense of humor, uh, which is hard to imagine, uh, but is also amazing. Yeah. Um, and yes, there was there was some point in my my work on this that I. I realized I I can't that this has to be you know sort of a mix. There has to be um, comedic relief, uh, yeah. which Lincoln certainly knew about from Shakespeare um, and valued, and brought it to even you know dire cabinet meetings or, or or discussions with military leaders it, he could throw in a little one liner or a pun um, is just, that why you start the collection with with uh i mean it's a humorous poem and i would assume you'd think of it that way darkly humorous yeah i i would say um yeah i mean i guess i don't mean comical you know i just i i, I think I read um, all of Lincoln's speeches and letters in the two-volume Library of America edition, mm-hmm. which is not everything, but yeah. it's it's the selected, and it's plenty. <laughs> um, I, I read enough of that to, to realize here is a man who brought a sense of not... Uh, not hilarity, but a sense of lightness and hmm. a sense of good humor to almost every situation he encountered. Hmm. Um, and and I just uh, I felt like he pretty much set the example for me to try to imagine. You, so he endured a lot. Obviously, there was. I mean, at this point, your your character, so to speak, has been assassinated. His mother died when he was young um, of what they call the milk fever. Yes. Um, and he lived in a very difficult time, obviously. he His son died as well, right? 
His one of his sons died while he was in office in February of 1862. And then plus you have the war, the the way that would weigh on him. Would you consider that that lightness that you say there is I mean is that a synonym for hope for him or or was or was maybe it something that I mean would you consider him hopeful? Was that some was that a word that you would use to describe him or perhaps a word that you would use That's to describe great, the character in your book? That is a great question. Hope is uh as Emily Dickinson says, hope is a thing with feathers. <laughs> um See, this is why it's good to interview poets. They always have a great line from a poem to call to mind. Hope and Lincoln are are, uh, difficult concepts to put together. Hmm. Um, But I think you're asking a really uh, interesting question. He, He valued preserving the Union of the United States above all else. And, and he, he realized that the nation would not survive if part of it broke away and became independent, that, that, that the character and the principles of, of the nation would only survive if, if the Union survived. And I, I think there must have been times when he felt uh, the war was a desperate hmm. act to preserve that union. And I don't know. You know, I, 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 it, it would be reading into him more than I'm comfortable yeah. Uh, yeah, that's fair. To claim that the desperate effort to preserve the Union could possibly be founded on hope. I'm prepared to believe it could be. Uh, hmm. But I think Lincoln was more the kind of person who was driven not so much by by hope but by principle that this is what we have to do hmm. and you know we even if we even if the outcome is not what we expect hmm. this is this is the effort we have to make so then that wasn't a, but it wasn't a concept then that was in your head as you were thinking about this this character of Lincoln, as far as how, looking back, I, thinking about maybe the things that he endured privately in addition to the way that you might endure his mother's passing because his mother died when he was young and then as you said, he builds himself up. Does that come from... I, th- I think for someone like Lincoln, given his background and experience, hope was a kind of luxury. Ah, yeah. Would would have been a kind of okay. luxury. Okay. There's a, there's a poem in the book that um, ends with the word hope, and it, the poem is called "A Barrel Full of Pickled Pigs' Feet." Uh, and this poem, Lincoln gets a letter from the son of a African American 
horse doctor in Paraville who was killed in the Battle of Paraville trying to call off the battle. Um, and the son of the doctor writes to Lincoln, um, which is all of this is imagined. Um, and the, the, the father was killed holding up his pocket watch and which the bullet went through the pocket watch and killed him. And the last lines of the poem are, uh, the hole in the watch reminded me of the eye, I guess, because I imagined the boy living to be an old man, occasionally looking through the watch to see his father there because I liked to imagine things that touched my heart and gave me hope. I don't know if that's the only mention of the word hope in the book, but it's one of the few. And that's, I don't know if you can hear in those lines, you know, my imagined sense that the, hope was something Lincoln approached with hesitation. Mm. Well, okay, so I, wanna, I wanted to ask you about this poem, and I wanted to ask you about it, and then a poem that comes a couple pages previously, at least in the version that I have here, called On Having a Fondness for Sentimental Songs and Verses. Mm -hmm. Because a few lines before what you read there, where he talks about, I like to imagine things that touched my heart and gave me hope, there's the line... Um, an American habit is to fail to recognize the symbolism of what happens, even as what happens always is so real. Um, and then in the previous poem, you have another line that says something is very American. <laughs> um, you say um, maybe 15, 16 lines down, um, you say a nonsense song may have a deeper meaning or not, or maybe it acquires meaning through time. That's very American too, meaning catching up with time, or time simply ceasing to matter, and the truth is left as plain and silent as a banjo hanging from a peg on the wall. I like that, a plain American image. And then you end with the line, an image like that suspended in time will change. So you're talking about two things that you, Lincoln here is reflecting on as very American, um, mm -hmm. the sense that um, that's very American too, meaning catching up with time. And I don't, I'm not going to ask you, can you completely break down the mystery of a poem <laughs> that you want people to linger with? But then you also have this, this idea that an American habit is to fail to recognize the symbolism of what happens. Um, when you talk about the symbolism of what happens, is, are you connecting that? Are, is there a connection that you're making here between the symbolism of what happens and, and, and the way that um, the, the, the image of the banjo hanging from a peg on the wall is that, and that being tied to um, imagining things that touched my heart and gave me hope. I mean, are these threads that are being connected throughout? Um, are these connected to this idea of things that he can imagine and give him hope? Or is this something we shouldn't talk about? We should let people just linger with and read it a couple times over the well, years. Well, <laughs> I, I think, um, let me see if I can make a stab at that. Um, I mean, we could do this without any of your poems in the book. Um, I don't want me to break it down too much. Sure. It's, I don't want to break sure. that barrier. I, I, I think um, 
I imagine Lincoln as someone who could see the reality of his history that that he was living in, mm-hmm. and also at the same time see the symbolic significance of it, yeah. and yeah. how at some point the symbolism and the actuality kind of cross paths with each other and become indistinguishable. Which that takes you back to the idea that what you said earlier about how we're still, we still hold him up. Yes. And how much of that is yeah, the symbolic sure, Abraham sure, Lincoln. Right. Or what he symbolizes anyway. Exactly. Um, and I think it is historically an American trait to kind of side with either the symbolism of our history or the actuality of it. And, and so you mean they're in two different poles? Exactly. We, to, we choose one or the other. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with the symbolism. So this, this is what patriotism means to me, and uh, these are the symbols that I associate with it. And somebody else might say, I'm going with the actual reality and what it means uh, sort of divorced from any symbolic significance, and that's what I'm going with. And so you're saying the, the, this version of Lincoln or Lincoln himself would have signed those the, the, the crossing of the paths there. Exactly. He would yeah. say you don't choose one or the other. I, I think Lincoln, in his lifetime, was aware this is really happening, and it also has a symbolic sort of archetypal uh, meaning or significance, Mm. and the two cannot be parted. Mm. So one of the reasons I wanted to ask you this, I want to, we'll wrap this up because we've talked for a while and, you you know, bed is calling and so forth. Um, The bugs are letting us know that. Um, But to what degree were you setting out to write a book that was about poetry? I mean, did that just happen or, or was this an exercise in, uh, you know, someone might call them like meta, a uh, meta exercise, meta discourse, or something like that. Well, because it it does. As I'm reading it, I'm thinking, "Oh, this is a great line about the nature of poetry here." And mm-hmm. I started to jot things down, but then I started thinking, "Well, that's might be almost every poem poet does that to some extent throughout a collection." But then I was thinking, to the degree to which Lincoln loved poetry, which you've talked about here, I didn't know if maybe you were purposefully setting out to, because of how much he loved it, write a book about. A book of poems about poetry. No, I, I didn't. I, I, it it just became what it became in in the process. And and as I encountered Lincoln more personally through his letters and speeches, and at some point, you know, a third or half of the way through the the book the early stages of it at least, <clears throat> I, I realized that um, how concerned and how, how, how interested Lincoln was in poetry, in theater, in, in literary matters, um, and how... From a broad perspective, that's a a kind of metaphor uh, 
to interpret his life and his steering the country through the Civil War, there is a, a, a kind of poetic dimension to to our national history. Mm. Um, and he certainly would have been one to realize that. that mm. And I, this isn't something that I was thinking about At the beginning of, of working on this was book, was it a goal you wrote down? No, you not at yourself. all. No, yeah. but as as I was, uh, you know, as I was midway in 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 writing this book, I, I really began to think about our country and what it is and what it means and what it symbolizes and what it claims and. It's, uh, you know, there's not a simple answer to any of that, hmm. and there's not a straight answer. It's, it's, it's a mix. Um, but I think in some ways our, our national history is our most profound poetic reality. Because it's full of ambiguity, it's full of irony, it's full of beauty, it's full of terrible truths. And somehow our objective is to get through all of that to some sort of... Um, reality that that doesn't forget the history and yet transcends it well before we call it a night could i ask you to read um the rail splitter poem from the collection sure to end the to end the conversation i think it's the last one in the book right it is i was i enjoyed the uh i think it's in the introduction you write about why you chose to make it all one word so people should go read that and and check that out because i enjoyed that but you know that's a great example of uh being careful about language <laughs> rail splitter i was killed by an actor a famous glamorous young man known for playing the tragic roles and I was a president whose face was coarse and enigmatic, though marked by a conscious mole. But the derringer he stuck behind my ear produced, in the end, a dark, symbolic hole, American and bottomless. No tears can fill it. Your Melville had the accurate verse, what like a bullet can undeceive? Here, here, the, anti, the antique eloquence of the national curse. What an ironic martyr I've been. I'm long in a realm that has no ceilings, though dying was worse. There is a mystery to being wrong 
and that has darkened the shadows of my mind. Mainly, I mean, how I could like the song away down yonder in the land of cotton for rhyme. And what else should I call it but jauntiness and ignore the euphemistic old times? Make up a song to cover sin, boundless and almost unimaginable sin. My task has been to stare it in the face, faceless though it is. We share a common dark, a mask is what we have, one voice and total silence and verse intended not to answer, but ask the obvious question hanging in the distance of time. Who is that? Swinging on the gallows, my friends, united by love and innocence. And who is buried in those endless rows, those silent lines of American poetry where metaphors and muses refuse to go. Hmm. Well, thank you for taking some time. It's getting late, so... (laughs) My pleasure. Well, that was my conversation with poet Morris Manning from his writing shed in rural Kentucky, not too far from Lexington. Remember, you can get your hands on Rail Splitter wherever books are sold. It is available to order now. You can get it on Amazon, of course, but we always like to recommend that you get it from your independent bookseller. So be on the lookout for Rail Splitter this fall. Like I said at the top of the show, it's one of the best collections of poetry that I've read this year, and I think you'll really like it. And don't forget to check out my other part of the conversation with Mr. Manning, which you can check out at formerjournal.com or in the print edition of Forma, which you can subscribe to at formerjournal.com slash subscribe. This has been another episode of Forma here on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. For all of us here at the Circe Podcast Network and for all of us here at the Former Journal, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, farewell. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.